Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hello, one and all. This is episode 26 of the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We have a treat of a pod for you this month, not least because I've brought the band back together for the first time in a while. First up, bringing his own unique rhythms and beats, we have Digital Bulletin CEO, Romilly Broad. Thanks. Rhythms and beats. That's the one thing I definitely don't have. (laughs) And alongside Rom is the man once labelled the rock star of B2B journalism. In the sense I've just labelled him that, it's content director James Henderson. Good morning. Thank you for that unbelievable welcome. It's good to be back. How are we both? I was just thinking how rubbish our actual band would be. None of us can sing or play instruments or write music, so yeah. I I don't think you know for a fact that I can't play an instrument. You can't play any instrument. I mean, I can't, but... Well, there uh, you go. Can you play an instrument, Rom? You're sort of talking like you can. Well, I, I thought everyone had to go through that rite of passage as a kid. Was it just me? But I, yeah, I learned how to play brass instruments. So I've, I've got a trumpet under the stairs. <laughs> of course you do. That sounds, honestly. Let's take that as, as a literal statement. Um, right. Great to have you on, guys. Coming up on today's show, it's been in the news quite a lot recently. We are going to cross the Rubicon and chat quantum computing the brave souls that we are and then a little later on we will hear my in-depth interview with fathom ai ceo and world economic forum global ai council member michael pridis but first some news Now, to pick up on a topic we've covered a lot on this podcast, big public sector cloud deals in the United States. This week saw the Pentagon invite the cloud hyperscalers to bid for its joint warfighting cloud capability contract. JWCC is the replacement for the controversial Project Jedi, which was scrapped earlier this year. All the usual suspects are involved, as you'd expect. Another big story this week has been Ericsson buying cloud communications firm Vonage for $6.4 billion. Reuters described this news as Ericsson snapping up Vonage, but I refuse to accept that a company worth 6.4 billion can be snapped up. Nvidia's $40 billion acquisition of ARM came back into the headlines recently with further doubts cast over whether this will actually happen. There is going to be a phase two investigation into the deal with the Competition and Markets Authority here in the UK, already raising some serious competition concerns. Elsewhere, we've seen Vodafone and VMware strike up a huge collaboration around network orchestration and 5G. Databricks make a big splash around a new data warehouse speed record. And a little-known Silicon Valley upstart named Facebook is now calling itself Meta. What? Listener. Yeah. Did you not hear that? I didn't know about that. That's wrong. Sorry. (laughs) Now, listener, as you know, you can find the best reporting on those stories and many, many more via the bulletin on digitalbulletin.com. But we as a panel are now going to delve into the topic of quantum computing. I'm not going to give either James or Rom the thankless task of explaining the science behind quantum computing, although I'm sure Rom would give it a good stab. But as this once futuristic concept becomes a reality, we're going to explore a little bit behind the headlines and discuss where the first practical use cases of quantum computing might come or whether they will come at all. This has been triggered by a couple of things, IBM releasing its Eagle processor, which it defined as a key milestone on the quantum journey, and the Prime Minister here in the UK, Boris Johnson, outlining his goal for the country to become a global power 
in the quantum computing race. Now, James, I think the most pressing issue here is to discuss um, whether Boris Johnson had any idea what he was talking about when he was talking about quantum computing, or was he, like us, just going to bluster and bumble his way through? Yeah, I, I can't judge someone for not knowing the intricacies so much of quantum computing and the absolute science of it, because like Boris Johnson, I'm not a computer scientist, but also I'm not the prime minister and I don't, you know, stand up and profess to know about these things. Um, I think that, that Johnson said that he'd spoken to two people from Google and that was why he's now so yeah, dead set like on, um, yeah, it's like this wasn't on his radar at all before, which is... That's some extensive policy research right there. Yeah, expected to, don't get me wrong, two, you know, unbelievably well-qualified people at Google, but two people nonetheless, and now he wants to become a world leader in something. You think, right, okay. Um, Yeah, he's making sort of grand claims that the UK can come on to to have half of the market share by 2040, which seems rather fanciful in that, it's like we're the we're the only people who are onto this, you know. Like that, like he thinks that these two people told him some sort of secret, and you think, well, aren't the likes of sort of China and the US, Germany, France, India, you know, Australia? They're all going to have their own designs on this if it is, you know, it's going to be as as powerful um, and as capable and as exciting as we think it could be. So that that fifty percent number just I don't know, it staggered me a little bit. I just thought it was so so odd that you could just say. Well, yeah, everyone's yeah. going to stand aside for us and that we'll have half of it. The other 210 countries in the world can have the other half. And so I just don't, I, don't I, I shouldn't be surprised or staggered by the stuff that Boris Johnson comes out with anymore, but I, I am. Um, and that was just a sort of another one. Don't get me wrong, I think that the idea to, to put money into quantum computing and to embrace it and its possibilities, obviously that is a very sensible thing to do. Um, but just the blustering, yeah, we can have, we'll have half the market and the world can have the other half. Just thought, yeah. I don't, I, I I don't think, know. I th- you don't know where he gets this stuff from. I think the you said US and China. I think those two countries might already have some designs in place. Too. Yeah, right. Um, Rom, though, it's interesting that, that quantum computing is, is kind of entering the political conversation, if you can call what Johnson does as kind of political conversation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a reason that it's entering that conversation. That's because, um, you know, it's about to become possibly actually useful for for the first time in, in ever. It's been a theoretical and engineering challenge for years and years and years. But um, certainly with IBM are kind of making lots of noises about this. They reckon within the next couple of years, they'll have a quantum computer that reaches something approximating what they call quantum advantage. And I that's that's a quantum computer that can actually do something better than your laptop, um, which, you know, will be helpful. Um, and so it's like, oh, maybe he had a chat with a couple of Google people and they went, yeah, we reckon a couple of years. And Boris has gone, well, I went to Peppa Pig World yesterday. And so now I think we should do that because inspiring, isn't it? Britain invented Peppa Pig and actually a lot of quantum theory but that all happened, you know, by dusty old academics in ancient medieval halls of academia. Um, we've not really had any role to play in this, as far as I'm aware. Um, it's all happening elsewhere. Is there a massive, massive future for this stuff? Absolutely. Should uh, every country be involved in it? Of course. And um, one thing that uh, the UK 
does have is a really strong academic um, sector, which can certainly play a role in, in it. But <laughs> is, is the UK going to own 50% of the whole thing? No, no, no. <laughs> Ron, what's your broader assessment of, of the landscape then, given what you've said there? And you mentioned IBM. We know, we know as well that the other big tech companies have invested billions of dollars in quantum mm. computing. Do, do you think, you know, is it going to be is it going to be the academic side that's going to drive this? Is it going to be the, the the money and the big tech side that's going to ultimately make that breakthrough? Well, right now it's both. So academic um, stuff is being powered by and invested in by the likes of IBM and Google and others um, and, and countries. Um, huge amounts of money are going into this stuff. And there are startups that have got particularly interesting um, uh, approaches to these things that have, you know, relatively recent, recently just floated and then achieved, you know, one, two billion dollar valuations overnight because of the potential of this stuff and and the sense that it's almost getting to the point of being practically usable. That said, there are still people out there, by the way, very very well-respected academics who say, actually, this is never going to work. And there are good like mathematical reasons why it's never going to work. But so, I mean, we'll see. Obviously, What, there's what are people... the mathematical reasons, Ron? Uh, noise. Okay. <laughs> Temperature? But, uh, as, look, I don't really understand. But as far as I understand it there, you know, the, the more complex a quantum computing system gets, the more noise it generates. Um, noise being the catch-all term for errors that are generated and solving and stopping those errors is like the the probably the number one challenge of, of scaling these things up and there are people out there who say look sorry about this but you know it's just going to inevitably not work um they those people are hugely outnumbered by the people who are convinced otherwise so let's hope that they're right um but yeah i mean in terms of what the landscape looks like ibm reckons that two years from now it'll have um a new version of the chip that it's just launched so um just announced rather the one that they've got now has got 127 qubits um which actually is a lot <laughs> but what they reckon is that in order to um become practically and commercially viable you need to have well over a thousand of them and then there are people out there that are saying but in order to genuinely start doing really cool stuff you're going to need millions of them so we're still quite early in the journey but as of two years from now we might start seeing applications and and then you say well what does what does that look like what what does the lands what are the first things that you know might benefit from it and you think well there's a lot of people with a lot of money you've invested a lot of time and resources into developing this stuff so where will it be applied first climate change drug discovery no it's going to be the stock market isn't it it's going to be finance and <laughs> that's the way they're going to do it. um so you know that'll probably be the first application of it but then um then we'll see it you know potentially within the next decade there are um incredible things that could be achieved with quantum computing that supercomputers just can't can't do now and that that comes down to the basic um i don't understand how any of it works but i understand roughly what it does that classical computers can't do and that's classical computers are you know circuits that um you've either got a one or a zero and when you're doing really complex things where there are you know whether it's trying to predict the the shape of a protein or um all the kind of the vast complexity of, of climate um change and uh, impacts of different things on that um there are so many possible outcomes of of 
the, the question that you're asking, but it takes classical computers, it doesn't matter how big the supercomputer is, it takes enormous amounts of time because they have to basically calculate all the permutations one at a time. Um, whereas quantum computers can just look at all possible permutations at the same time um, simultaneously because of how quantum stuff works. Um, within the next decade, we might be able to see results of that sort of thing happening. You know, so if you, um, there are problems that a classical computer would take weeks to solve that a quantum computer can, in theory, relatively soon do in a second. And so you, the, the potential of that right now is enormous, especially when we're facing such serious challenges like climate change and um, rampaging epidemics and you know all the other stuff that, that we could use it, this, this stuff for. Yeah. And you mentioned climate change, James. It's interesting that Johnson's comments came during during COP26. Obviously, where a, a load of global leaders are scrambling around trying to find solutions and maybe not seeing one, is quantum the solution to 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 at least being you know a fundamental part of some of the work we might do to to radically change that topic and and other big topics like that? Well, if if quantum advantage is achieved, then then yes, it certainly could be. A some use cases are really exciting and, and you think if, if it does work then quantum is going to play a big role in maybe solving some of the key challenges of our time there's you know there's um it, it could help us sort of separate carbon dioxide into oxygen and carbon monoxide and reducing how much co2 we put, we put into the atmosphere which obviously we, we need to do um to to achieve some of the targets that have been spoken about at cop 26 it can possibly help us understand how to to make fertilizer in a way that uses a lot less energy obviously electrification is something that everyone is, is hurtling towards at a great speed and daimler which is the the, the sort of parent company of bmw is actually teamed up with ibm um to look at how quantum computing might be able to model new lithium batteries which are which take less energy which use less energy to to charge etc um and also the, 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 the there's the whole farmer aspect of it you know i think rom spoke about you know proteins and, and there's there's definitely the potential again if quantum advantage is achieved which is by no means a, a given but it it could definitely help help with sort of new drug discovery and, and materials and, and predict how sort of complex molecules behave so we're talking about farmer electrification emissions as I said, some of the key issues of our time. So certainly, I can I can definitely understand, or is certainly understandable, why there is a lot of hype around it. But there's definitely the aspect of hope as well. There's no doubt that they'll be looking at this as potentially solving a lot of the the problems that we have that that perhaps they don't see an obvious solution for. So there's, I I, I understand why, they, like I said, why there's there's so much chat around it and so much hope around it as well. The the key thing though is that is the timeline, isn't it? I don't think. Uh, well, obviously there are skeptics still out there, but most most very well qualified people believe that this is going to fundamentally make a difference. It's just when it happens. So as as Rom said, the 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 IBM processor Eagle, I think it was, um, I think it's called, has, has achieved one hundred and fifty seven qubits or something in that region. But we're talking, yeah, 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 that's good. But exactly. there's an ex exponentiality involved here, right? 157 is fairly serious. Yes. I'm just <laughs> to say. Right, carry on. 
but the, the the reaching the point of of a practical use and and you know what are those first practical uses going to be? It's not going to be suddenly a solution that solves climate change, and that 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 solution what James is talking about there might be something that requires, as you said, Ron, millions and millions and millions of these things. So it's so mm. difficult to put a time frame on this, isn't it? Yeah. Well, if the usual law is uh, that we've got used to during the twentieth century of of you know what is it? Is it Moore's law? It's called. I might, I might be going, oh, if I've got that wrong, that's embarrassing, isn't it? But, you know, it's where, you know, the, the size of, of semiconductors and microchips and stuff like that reduce um, half every couple of years or whatever it is. Um, you know, if, if this follows the same pattern, then it's not going to be very long before they figure it out. And and they want to, IBM themselves want to go from 127 qubits now to 400 and something or other next year and then over a thousand uh, the year after, which is pretty much following that rule. So if that happens, Great. There's, I think there's, as far as I understand it, there's a lot of engineering challenges to overcome on on the way. But um, it it's there's a lot of people that are very convinced that this is going to happen, and so we'll certainly start seeing the benefits of that pretty soon. I think. And one of the things that's worth mentioning as well is that quantum computing is in itself part of a a solution to one of our most pressing issues, which is. Um, energy and climate change and how um you know we we cover we write um features all the time about the the cost of computing from an environmental perspective um particularly when you've got i think silly things like nft and crypto and all that sort of stuff that are literally burying holes in our ambition to to solve the climate problem um through the simple pursuit of hard cash by a number of people um, they're also stopping me getting a PlayStation 5. Um, uh, anyway, the um, quantum computing presents part of the solution to that, kind of, in the sense that actually quantum computing is far less energy um, intensive than normal computing. And so, hey, maybe in the future we get to switch over to um, this stuff uh, for large-scale applications, and um, that could contribute itself to to part of the solution as it finds the solutions do you see what although, i mean although they need to be kept at lower temperatures don't they so that's a challenge yeah. that's well yeah sure that's challenging yeah these things need to operate at damn near like absolute zero but um the cost of doing that versus running a um you know a, a, a mining farm for crypto is minuscule so if you if you're running a big big supercomputer you know so you've got a ton of processes doing classical computing things um that costs many millions of dollars a year to run um a quantum computer is runs at pretty much absolute zero there's no resistance in there the, the electricity requirement is actually really really small because stuff's just flowing about in there without encountering any problems right so you know, I think you're, uh, I read somewhere that the, the, the cost of running a quantum computer is tens of thousands of dollars versus many, many millions. And so if you, you get to a place where actually a lot of the, you know, the really intensive compute work is being done on those platforms rather than the supercomputers, then um, you're actually, you know, helping a little bit. I'm not sure you're helping that much, but, you know, it's certainly worth having. Um, and, that, and that speaks to a larger um uh, question i suppose which is about well hang on how practical are these things going to be to actually have and run and you know how many people how can people access this stuff well um in theory once they've um figured out how to construct uh these chips and maintain them reliably at uh, 
at the temperatures they need to then um then it's just a cost of of of, of building and running those things and the more people are doing it the cheaper it gets you know as yeah. as with every, anything else i don't think the cost of of running these things is is prohibitive um at all yeah and that that's a nice segue rom actually in, into the next question which and, and james i'm going to come to you about the classic db topic of kind of business application and, and business access to this this technology um as rom mentioned and, and we've spoken about ibm are making huge kind of plays around this i think they had a dedicated event to quantum computing um a couple of weeks ago where these announcements were made but is it also inevitable that the big cloud providers will come in here and, and swallow up a lot of this um as they have done with many other things before i think aws and azure already have quantum services and yes quantum computing as a service is a thing i think <laughs> through those companies do, do you think that that is inevitably going to happen probably but again i think we, we come back to quantum advantage and it, the sort of proof of concept that, that it's going to work they're, they're already putting as you said huge amounts i know google are as, as well as aws and huntwell as well which is a huge sort of industrial services software company AWS opened an AWS AWS center for quantum computing just last month. Um, so there, there obviously is, there's already been millions or billions put behind it. And I think Ron mentioned earlier, any company which even, even seems half likely to have some software or hardware, which is deemed um, to be an improvement on what's already there has already been valued in the, in the billions. Um, so, I think you have to look at the, the the cloud players. They've already sort of integrated AI, ML, data analytics capabilities into their cloud platforms, and all these guys, as we know, are fighting for market share, either to to, to improve what they have or to shore up their space. Um, so there's no doubt that they'll be looking at these at these smaller companies and 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 thinking about them in terms of M and A activity. We we know that. They have huge war chests to go out there and snap up, as you said earlier, um, companies for, for billions of dollars. Um, but again, I do think it will be a case of there being some sort of proof that there's there's quantum quantum advantages possible. And um, I think until then, we might see them concentrate on their sort of own internal operations around it, whether that's AWS or whatever it may be. Um, but there's no doubt that if if it if that is proved and there are, there are, there are companies startups coming to market which they um, deem to be exciting or worth a, a punt of ten billion twenty billion they'll, they'll go out there and do it and look to add them to to their cloud platforms without any question. Yeah, yeah. To add on to that as well, I think it, it's I think it's inevitable actually that access to these services is going to come via the cloud. IBM already offers it, um, and that's because the investment that's gone into actually building this thing as a piece of in infrastructure is so vast that actually it's in the interest of those people to maintain a hold on it and simply provide access to it um, efficiently and placing it within a cloud infrastructure is, is the obvious, obvious way to do it. I think actually this goes full circle back to the our original question about what the hell Boris Johnson knows about anything. Um, which is that um, probably the big, the best thing that the UK and any other country that wants to have a stake in this can do, especially countries like the UK with a with a with a really solid academic um, infrastructure, is to leverage the tools that are already available via things like IBM Cloud and others to educate 
people who in 10 years time will be the ones that are using this stuff um by plugging that in you can imagine uh, countries like the uk certainly gaining an, an advantage by having a population of people that are ready to exploit um these devices they don't necessarily need to own them in order to do the work if you see what i mean and ibm i know is already you can already access that and and start doing the programming that's required to make quantum computers do stuff and the programming is obviously quite important because if you don't do that properly it just spits out a load of random gibberish and um you know by default because physics uh, um you've got to get that stuff right so it's a really important new skill and that the uk could certainly play a part in that it's got a long academic history of um, um the, the science of quantum mechanics and stuff it, it should be well placed to to expand that you'd think yeah and from academia spring startups and there are uh, we've spoken a lot about the big tech companies but there are in this space in particular a lot of um i think i saw one startup that was claiming to have a 256 qubit processor um just this week in reaction to to the ibm um news as well and when you say startups it's essentially just one or two scientists who have got an amazing take on this idea right <laughs> yeah and therefore they're worth two billion dollars exactly exactly um good stuff chaps i want to i want to finish by kind of getting your perspective on what what the conversation might be in in maybe like 10 years time obviously this is a big conversation right now james i'm going to come to you first you've obviously been covering technology for a bit what do you what do you think realistically will be the conversation in 10 years time do you think we'll have seen use cases by then for example uh i'm i'm dubious but i'm a cynic by nature um I think that we mentioned, didn't we, a little bit earlier that um, someone at IBM said that the market at the moment is in the same place that maybe semiconductors were 10, 15 years ago, and that they had this massive challenge of how do you sort of miniaturize it and how do you make it more capable? And that's, that has been achieved. But this, this is, a, I was going to say quantum, but even, even I'm not going to go there. Um, Look, the, the absolute truth is, I'm not going to be like Boris Johnson. I don't know. I have no. I have really. No one knows. No one. No, no one. I, knows I mean, anyone. that is obvi obviously the thing. <laughs> um, I, 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 like I said, I'm, I, I am quite sceptical about it. Um, we're not just going to solve all of the world's problems straight away with this thing, as you, as you said earlier. So I think it might still be in a stage where maybe we have achieved some sort of quantum advantage, but it's a big step isn't it from from going from quantum advantage to that it's proven that it can it can do things more effectively than classical to okay well how do we sort out you know the world's emissions problems i think maybe we we might get to you know where undoubtedly i think we'll get to where it's a, a thousand qubits plus 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 or what, whatever that is but i'm 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 not sure that it will be at the stage where it's solving the planet critical issue I think that's where we might find ourselves. That's a good assessment. I was wrong. There is one person who knows exactly what's going to be happening in 10 years, and that's Professor Romley Broad. <laughs> yes. Rom, 2031, when we're all driving around in our electric cars and enjoying a newfound lifestyle, what some, is some going of to us be already happening? are because we're more morally conscious than others, I should say. Um, um, in um, 10 years' time, we will achieve um, or will have achieved. Um, not just quantum advantage, but the commercialization of it so that it's available. In 20 years time, um, fantastic new drugs are going to be developed really quickly to address many uh, 
major illnesses and problems, 30% of the population are, are going to reject those drugs because drugs because uh, Bill Gates, aliens, um, I don't know, whatever reasons they might have, um, they will then uh, all die, leaving the rest of us to uh, experience and enjoy warp drive, which will follow 10 years after that. Thank you. Just making some notes. Now, there, you so know, make sure I follow up with you make. on that. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Right. Thanks, chaps. I think we did as well as could have been expected there. And we're going to wrap it up before it gets a bit too silly. But if you want more, there's an in-depth feature on the quantum revolution in the October edition of Digital Bulletin. Um, I think there are a couple of startup founders featured in that as well. Well worth a read. All you need to do is head over to digitalbulletin.com. And we're going to say goodbye to our panel guests now. Your work here is done. Romley Broad, thank you very much. Uh, no problem. Anytime. James Henderson, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. And next up, we're going to hear from Fathom AI's CEO, Michael Pridis, after this. Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram and at digi underscore bulletin on Twitter. For this month's interview, I got the chance to speak with Michael Pridis, CEO of Fathom AI. Fathom's artificial intelligence platform supports businesses to make data-driven decisions about their people and teams. The workforce is changing, and recruitment is proving a particular challenge post-COVID-19. In the interview with Michael, we chat less about the future of work and more about the evolution of work. I ask if reskilling employees is easy, and Michael reveals why COVID-19 has been a slingshot for automation strategies. But first, I ask him about those recruitment challenges as we emerge from the pandemic. Yeah, well, I think the key word there is emerge. I mean, the, the way that different businesses in different parts of the world are emerging is very different. And actually, even within the UK or within a particular country, we're seeing really different patterns in terms of office use, return to work, ongoing hybrid working. A lot of it comes down to you know the size of the organisation, the location and the way that COVID is impacting that local community. But I think one of the things that, that we can see worldwide is that people have learned how to work from home. And a lot of people still expect to do so. So I think it's probably quite a difficult job if you're in strategic workforce planning or HR management at the moment to get a really clear fix on where your people are going to be at any moment in time. Um, the second major issue is what's becoming known as the great resignation. And I mean, it's particularly prevalent in the, in the US, but also starting to really impact, I think, in, in Europe and in, you know, down here in Australia. Um, and all that kind of pent up demand of people wanting to change jobs now being released now we're out of lockdown. Um, so we're starting to see that sort of really affect how people are starting to think about their workforces. Um, the third thing though is the counterpoint to that, which is because we've now learned how to manage remote teams, we don't need to bring people back into the office. And I think this is presenting opportunities for hiring managers where they previously tried to hire people in their location. They're now able to open the, the consideration to people who might be you know, further afield or even overseas. So to say it's a complex and ever-changing world is a bit of an understatement, but I think after the last couple of years, that's something we're all quite used to. Yeah, definitely. Now, Michael, the term future of work was around long before long before the pandemic, but how do you think the definition of, of what the future of work means has changed over the last 18 months? Well, we've used the term future of work, you know, since get-go, but we've always disliked it. I mean, whenever we say future of anything to anybody, we're asking ourselves to cast our minds forward to some future date. And the problem with that is that we ignore the things that are happening today. If you go into any C-suite, any group of executives, any organization anywhere in the world, you're talking to a group of people who have on average less than five years tenure. 
So on the law of averages, they've all got two or three years left. And you say future of work, and you're saying it's a complicated topic. We haven't got an immediate solution. It's quite political. It's deeply emotional. And also by saying future of work, we're saying medium to long term. A lot of those people are going to be looking at you and nodding, but in their heads, they're thinking, this is not my problem. If you say evolution of work, you make it a much more tractable, tactical issue, something that really we should be working on in a tactical way day to day. So number one point, Ben, is that we try and encourage people to think about the evolution of work. Future work is a nice brand, is a nice term, we'll know what we mean. But at a practical level, this is not a kind of a disruptive shift that all of a sudden is happening. This has been on the cards on people's radar for a long period of time. And, you know, the many of us around the world that kind of provide data on this sort of topic, our job is to help people make changes today and tomorrow, not in two, three or five years time. So then the next step is, okay, well, what does this actually mean? What do I actually do? And one of the things that we often say is, you know, the first step is the hardest. And, and quite often it's getting your head around the data. It's understanding what is the impact of technology and, and economic change, industry change, the pandemic and so on. You know, what does this actually mean for my workforce today? And what is the gap between today's skills, today's people, and those that we need in six months or 12 months, and then start thinking about two or three years. So if you kind of strip away some of the fear about this, um, you, you dispel some of those media myths where there's been an awful lot of media worldwide over the last sort of five or 10 years about how automation equals redundancy. Even people start to speculate on things like universal basic income. It's just not true. There'll be a ton of work in the future. The challenge is not what do we do with all these people on the streets with, you know, with no work to do, and, and how do we deal with issues like you know welfare and universal basic income? It's much, much more about how do we provide regular ongoing skills development, reskilling and upskilling those people into the jobs they need to do in six months and 12 months time in an ongoing way. When you view the problem in that kind of way, all of a sudden it becomes much more addressable. I'm gonna press you on the automation stuff a bit more in a minute, but what you're saying there, I'm guessing, is what you would call strategic workforce planning. Can you talk a bit more about that and how that ultimately can make a difference, especially in the context of what companies are going through post-COVID? Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's one of these terms that's been around for ages, but has suddenly become a very you know, popular um, idea. Um, it really starts with what is an organization's strategy? Where's that organization going? And there's a framework that we and many other people use called the five Bs, which is buy, build, borrow, bot, base. So how do we need to acquire more skills? How do we need to bring in consultants? How do we need to use different types of technologies to think about automation? How do we need to think about who comes back into the workforce? Buy, build, borrow, bot, base. And within the, the framework of having understood, okay, we've got 10,000 people in this organization or in this location right now. This is the shape of that workforce in the future, given the type of automation, the type of investments, the way that the organization will be changing. That then gives us a, a framework for thinking about how do we go from today's organization to, to tomorrow's. And really, when you strip away all the, the, the kind of management jargon, it's really about having the right number of people in the right roles with the right skills at the right time. Now, that's not a difficult job to do when you've got a business of 20 or 30 or 50 because you know everybody. And as a central planner, you know, you know that Ben does this and Mike does that and Rory does this and so on. Um, when you're talking about a bank or a telco, when you're talking about a place that's got multiple locations, a place, you know, an organization that works in a multinational environment or an organization where some of those strategic decisions are being set by a head office that may be in another country and you need to execute that in your particular location, it becomes quite a complex matter and that's where we help. So what we're doing there is using Fathom data to help those planners 
in those kind of central HR leadership roles to understand who they have today and who they need tomorrow and what the gap is. Yeah. Maybe, maybe then, Michael, it's a good time to talk a bit more about Fathom, your company, what it does. You've spoken a lot about data already and, and what, what, what's the kind of tech here that underpins what, you, what your company offers? So we're an we're a artificial intelligence company that delivers analytics about the future of work through a software as a service platform. Um, so we set up it early 2016. We spent 18 months designing and building the first version of the AI platform. We launched at the end of 2017 and we grew to having clients in 21 industries in 26 countries. So we were regarded as the foremost analytics and AI company operating in the future of workspace worldwide. Um, as we were growing so quickly and, and growing internationally, um, we, we attracted a number of different um, offers to acquire the business. And a couple of months ago, Pearson PLC, which as you know, is the world's largest education company, acquired Fathom to become the engine room of the new workforce skills division. So really that sort of describes a bit about what we do. We're connecting um, the, the world's content through Pearson and third-party content providers to the world's employers with analytics that describe the impact of automation, industry change, economic change, the pandemic, and so on, you know, in a, in a very kind of practical way to the individual employees inside that business. And you brought up the topic of, of automation earlier. Obviously, this is something that is, is still spoken about a lot. It's a, a debate that's raged on and on for many years about the impact of, of, of automation. What are your thoughts on that? And what should companies think be thinking about when it comes to embracing automation in that evolution of work piece i'm not going to say future work i'll say evolution of work um both both in the short term as as maybe their strategies are, have been ripped up by the pandemic and and longer term as they, as they look to build sustainable business yeah. so there's a couple of kind of truths that have existed for the last few years and survived the pandemic and then obviously the pandemic you know has had a major effect on automation so i'll do all those two points separately firstly it's it's incorrect and and again this is one of these kind of media hyperbole kind of issues it's incorrect to think that automation equals redundancy and job losses. You know, we've seen those sort of scary headlines over the last few years, and I'm happy to say that generally speaking, it's not correct. Automation does not equal job loss. What I was seeing on the ground, um, you know, my previous role, I was a partner of BCG and I was the managing director of BCG's technology innovation practice across Asia Pacific. So I was involved in designing, building and deploying AIs and other emerging technologies into our clients in 25 different countries and a bunch of different in, in different industries. And what I was seeing on the ground was that there might be task level automation, but the individual human is augmented and there are many roles added. And so it's a slightly more nuanced pitch when you actually look at what's happening in organizations or you look at it with objective and good data. What it means is that we're unlikely to shed vast numbers of workers. There will be some people whose jobs are automated, but there'll also be many jobs added. And in between, the single biggest shift is the augmentation of workers, which is to say our ability to use emerging technologies to do more. And that just makes us more productive. It gives us more time. It allows us to automate the things that we probably shouldn't be doing anyway in terms of, you know, kind of process working and manual data entry and so on. So um, that's... That's a general statement that was true five years ago, is true today, and I think will probably be true in five years' time, that we'll still have many people employed and, and there'll still be you know, a skill shortage in key areas and we'll still be looking for people across, you know, across industries. What COVID has done is it's, it's, it's acted as a bit of a slingshot, not just an accelerator, but a slingshot to 2023 or 2024 in terms of how companies are deploying those automation technologies. So if you were running, you know, let's say a big bank, 
18 months ago, you know, when the pandemic started, you were probably experimenting with things like robotic process automation. You know, you were probably thinking about, well, we'll do a trial, we'll do a pilot, we'll run some experiments, we'll see what happens. And then COVID came along and nobody could come into work and you were you know, dramatically affected in the way that obviously we've all experienced. And what, what a lot of these businesses did was they dropped the hammer on those programs. And they said, okay, now we're just going to hit scale. And so COVID has accelerated the deployment of those technologies much faster than anybody thought was going to happen at the you know, late 2019. So whether it's robots in, 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 in warehouses, whether it's RPA and other kind of you know, types of AI and ML in, inside process-driven organizations, um, those experiments went full scale very quickly. And so we've lived through quite a dramatic period over the last 18 months, just in terms of automation. Um, most of us will be very familiar with you know, a lot of the news reports and, and really some of the amazing kind of breakthroughs that we're seeing in terms of retail and distribution, manufacturing, but also you know, self-service. And you only have to look at the way that the UK, I mean, this was famous worldwide. This was in the media here in Australia, when the UK was setting up hospitals in, in the space of 10, 10 days or two weeks, and then able to put telehealth into every GP's office within the space of a couple of months. Well, that was an automation program. And that was done by necessity. And the world applauded what the UK did. And, you know, it was just a fantastic example, I think, of, of what can be done when, you know, when, when you're pushed. So um, what this has meant, though, is that it's then presented a whole range of new skills challenges for these organizations, for these employers. And it's meant that we needed to really kind of rethink right now what the, what the shape of the workforce is, the type of people that we need. And that's added kind of, you know, complexity and pressure to people's lives. And again, that's one reason why Fathom has grown so much in the, in the last couple of years. I mean, we grew 400% in the last 12 months to July. So many organizations in the automation, but also in the kind of future of work or workforce analytics space have grown. Um, my favorite story of this is, is UiPath. So they're one of our, our software partners. So we work closely with them, with the uh, companies worldwide. Um, they had 20 staff in 2015. And in March 2021, they listed on the New York Stock Exchange an evaluation of 37 billion. And that itself, I mean, the, the stories and the numbers, that's what COVID has done in terms of accelerating demand for automation, software and hardware. And on a final point, Michael, can I just bring it back to, to, to the recruitment and skills point you mentioned there? You, you said, you know, the introduction of automation doesn't mean the loss of jobs. It means almost the augmentation of jobs and people learning new skills. Is that as critical for companies going forward as much as recruitment is upskilling and reskilling existing employees? And, you know, yeah. what, what do you think of the challenges around that? Is that a really hard thing to do? Or is, is it as easy as, you know, people saying it in the media may, may think it is? Well, it's, again, it's one of those things. It, 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 it's always a bit of an it depends. So it's relatively easy to teach somebody to do what they currently do, but do it slightly better. It's obviously much harder to give them whole new sort of skill sets. But there's a way that I try and describe this, Ben, that, that, that really sort of characterizes the whole topic around reskilling. Um, and it's, it's that... Computers are good at the jobs we find hard and bad at the jobs we find easy. And what I mean by that is we're not designed as human beings to you know, carry heavy objects, to dig holes all day, to do repetitive tasks, to take things from A to B, to access calculators or fact finders and so on. And throughout history, we've always used tools to help us do that. It's just got to the point where the tools are better than us at doing those things. But those tools, now software and hardware, will find it very difficult now and probably for a long time to be creative, to be collaborative, you know, to synthesize information, to, to think about care and, and empowerment and, and culture and so on. 
And so what we're seeing is a shift from that first type of work, which is routine and process driven, to that second type of work, which is fundamentally more human. So now back to your question in terms of what are the skills and how do we teach them? We do need to teach people more technical skills to use these new you know, types of software and hardware. We also, though, need to teach people fundamentally human skills. So if you think of the last person that you hired, you know, if you had two candidates for the job, one was technically amazing, but average people skills. One was just a diamond to work with, but maybe a little, little bit behind where the, the, the first candidate was technically. You probably hired the second person. It's much easier to teach something to do something technical than it is to teach them to be a great collaborator, a great communicator, you know, a great person to have around the office, you know, a great person to motivate and inspire other people. But you can teach those things. We're just not very good at doing it. So I think the biggest challenge for employers is not just, okay, what are the RPA skills? You know, how do we teach people to work with robots? But it's how do we teach people to be more effective in their jobs when the, the, the machines are helping to free up their time? It's all very well to say you've got 30, 40% more time back in your job. Now go and be a great human being with other people without giving people the skills to collaborate, to design, to innovate, to deal with ambiguity. All those things that the high performers have, that's where we, we need to be focusing as well. Thank you to Michael for that interview. That's going to be us for this month, listener. But there's no chance of us letting you crack on with your day until I've got through some plugs. Our headline feature on Digital Bulletin right now is James's interview with Will van der Alst, aka the godfather of process mining. Definitely a feature worth reading if data science is your thing. And indeed, the next issue of the Digital Bulletin magazine will be out next Wednesday, December the 1st. If you want more podcasts, you can listen to audio versions of the very best long-form writing we have to offer. And why don't you try out the Tech for Good podcast, an interview series where we meet some pretty inspiring business leaders using their skills and tools to change the world. The last thing, listener, is to thank you for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye. That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation.